today we're kicking off a new series. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about, about doing, doing today's series actually because of what I'm going to be sharing with you. Uh, throughout the years, one of the, the things that I always want to do is I, I want to I preach, you know, just a, 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 a healthy diet of God's word. I want to be able to make sure that we are hitting on a bunch of different things that you're walking through that I feel like is very important for where you are, where, for where we are. Um, you know, any one diet is not good. You need a healthy array. You need, you need meat. You need vegetables. You need, you know, you need it all. You need a little cake every once in a while. Come on, somebody. Bluebell on the side. Okay, so you need, you need it all. You need it all. And every series that I preach kind of has a different theme, has a different goal. And, um, and what I haven't done in a while, and I'm going to start actually doing it a whole lot more, especially as we move into 2023, is, is starting to preach actually through parts of the Bible, actually taking books of the Bible and us, us really um, uh, asking the Lord what he has to say to us through books. And today's series is just that. It's, it's the beginning of that. Today we're going to be in the book of Daniel. Um, we're, going, we're going OT today, Old Testament. And so we're going, we're going to go to the book of Daniel. And, and the reason why I, uh, I chose the book of Daniel was because I think Daniel speaks really to where we are not just as a church, but I think where we are as a culture. And I, and I gave a subtitle to this whole series, and, and the whole series is Thriving in Land That Is Not Your Home. Thriving in a Land That's Not Your Home. How many of you know as Christians, we're not at home? I don't know if you realize that or not. Like, earth is not our home. This world is not our home. Like, we are made, the Bible says that we are citizens of heaven, that when we put our faith in Christ, that we uh, no longer are residents of this home. We're just passing through, but, but God has left us here so that we can make an impact. And, and, and yet what ends up happening is, is we are in the world, but we become like the world. And then when you become like the world, you can't actually change the world because you look too much like the world. But as Christians and as followers of Jesus, I mean, no, we should look different than everybody else. We should talk different than everybody else. We should act different than everybody else. We should respond differently than everybody else. We should work differently than everybody else. We should give differently than everybody else. We should love differently than everybody else. I'll keep going. I'll keep adding words, okay? But how many know we're called to be different? We're called to be unique. So if you're different, welcome. <laughs> this is what we're called to do. And, and, a, and, a, and a word for someone who is not in their home is a word that's, that is exile, an exile. And I'll, I'll give you a working definition of exile. I have so much I have to share uh, we're going to probably go at least six weeks through this, uh, just letting you know, and I'll, and I'll share a little bit of why I chose, even more of why I chose Daniel. But exile, let me give you a working definition of exile, because it's not a word we use too often. But an exile is someone who is forced out of their home and is now living somewhere else. That's pretty much what an exile is. Someone who is forced out of their home and they're living in somewhere that is not their, their home. They're, they're in exile. And and really, that's, that's where we are. We're, we're exiles as well. And so in this series, I want us to answer this question, and that is that how do we stand firm in our faith when we live in a world that is faithless? How do we, how do we live for God in a world that is ungodly? How is it that we can be a people that are thriving in a place, thriving in a culture, when the culture is the exact opposite of everything that we believe and, and desire and pursue and, and how many of you would agree that our culture is shifting more and more away from God, not more and more towards God? And there's really kind of three responses when it comes to the culture. And I want to I give these right out the gate, right on the front end of, of our responses to culture. 
As culture progressively gets more godless, when it gets further and further away, we can have three different types of responses. Let me give you those three if you're taking notes. Here's the first one. We can just reject the culture and just straight up reject the culture. We can hide from it. We can, we can kind of uh, bubble our kids away from it. We can stay away. We can kind of shout out the world from a distance. We're, we're like in major protection mode. We just want to make sure, you know, that nothing in this world gets in. And, and there's elements of this that is good. Um, but, but at some point, I know your kids are going to get out into the world. And uh, you can't protect them all the time. And so sometimes we can just disengage from it completely. We can just reject it completely and just be, be out of it. That's, that's, that's one response, okay? The second response, it goes to a whole other extreme, and that is that we can accept the culture. We can accept the culture. And we can just kind of give in to it and just accept, well, this is just the way that it is. And you know what? Most of, this, of the Bible is, you know what, a little bit outdated and the culture is more progressive. And so it, it, we, we need to just kind of evolve with the times. Undoubtedly, the, the world is getting smarter because we're evolving, right? We're, 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 we're learning more and more. We're knowing more and more now. We should just accept that this is how the world is. We should just accept that this is how education should be and this is how po- politics should be. And we should accept that this is just how people think and, and we should just accept it. We should just, it's just normal now. Well, the problem with that, though, is, is that oftentimes if we accept it, it's, we're accepting something that God doesn't even accept. So we can reject it. We can accept it. But I think the third option is the option that God desires for us as Christians, and that is that we influence the culture. We influence it. We, we change it. We bring change into it. It's not that we're rejecting it. It's not that we're accepting it. We're kind of in the middle. We're, 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 we are ambassadors of Christ, meaning we represent a different kingdom. We are, we are under his authority, and we're trying to help with the power of the Holy Spirit, bring a world that is subjected to sin and selfishness, and we're trying to help this world come in out of the darkness of light and into, or out of darkness and into light. We're trying to help people come into a relationship with Jesus. And this is why I chose the book of Daniel, because the book of Daniel is about... Daniel. Okay, all right. It's about... It's about y'all were like, is this a trick question? Is this... Samson? I don't know. Is this, it's about Daniel. Um, and, and most of you know about Daniel probably because of VeggieTales, all right? You've probably learned some of the stories. You know, come on, I mean, no, I mean, you've ever watched those, okay? Um, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. I mean, it's a very much a, of a story book in a lot of ways. But Daniel is one of the greatest biblical examples of a man who is in an ungodly culture, and thrived. Next to Jesus, Daniel is one of the greatest. And throughout this series, you're going to find out because Daniel goes from just not only just being in an exile, but because of the sovereign Lord that had favor upon him, Daniel went from an exile to a trusted prime minister and to a counselor of some of the mightiest rulers in all of the world. And yet, his view was totally different than the people he was ruling for. So God was elevating him in influence. God was elevating him in power. God was elevating him in position. And he didn't have to back down from the fact that he had to change his values He could hold to his values and his beliefs in Christ and in God, and this is what he did. And so I want to give you a little bit of background and context, and I'm just going to kind of let you know, this series might be a little bit different because I'm going to probably 
teach a lot more than I preach because I think it's important for us to just let the text do the work. And so we're going to just really read through scripture and allow these scriptures to help inform us. But most of, of the stories of Daniel um, are, uh, Daniel lived 400 years after King David, 600 years before Jesus. In the beginning of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, Daniel's about 15, 16 years old. He's a teenager. By the end of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, Daniel's 90 years old. And so the book of Daniel, you'll get to see, see him from his teenage years, in his 20s, 30s, all the way up until his 90s. The book of Daniel is broken into two halves. You've got the first half, the first six chapters, which are very personal. It's all about the person of Daniel, who Daniel is, what he does. Then the second half, the second six chapters, is all prophetic. Um, and, and Daniel even according to Jesus, is one of the most prophetic books in all of the Bible, next to Revelations. Daniel and Revelations are actually very connected. And if any of y'all have questions about end times, just stick around. We're going to dive into that too. So we're going to go into the personal side of Daniel. We're going to learn some things about the person of Daniel. And then we're going to go into the prophetic side of Daniel and get into this. Um, Daniel is, is prophetic in dreams and visions and prophecies, and so you have these two things. And um, you're going to find out in just a minute as we read this, God's people were living in Jerusalem, and the Bab- they were not honoring God. And God allowed the Babylonian army to come in, and they came in and they took, took captive all of God's people, and they brought them as exiles back to Babylon, which is 500 miles away. They destroyed all of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed everything. So you just got to imagine this moment where the God that you have somewhat served, you said you served, but you weren't really serving, has now been destroyed for the most part. Your temple has been destroyed where you worship, and now you've been brought into a very ungodly, polytheistic culture that worships nothing of God. And, and now you got to do, what do we do in this situation? So Daniel chapter 1 is where we begin, and we're going to look in verses 1. We'll look through 1 through 6 right now, and it says, it says this. Let's, let's read this together. It says, uh, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to see some characters um, that you're going to meet. First one is King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, uh, Babylon came to Jerusalem, and he besieged it. This is what I was just sharing just a minute ago. And the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. Now watch this. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and he placed them in the treasure, the house of his God. So just take a moment right there. A enemy of God came in, God allowed to come into Jerusalem, conquer Jerusalem, take all of the money and the gold and the precious things in the temple of God and go bring him back to his ungodly God, think about this for a moment, how big of, of a deal this is, in the house of his God, and then the king ordered Ashpenaz, I haven't heard anybody naming their kid that one lately, um, his chief of staff, so his second in command, and here's the orders that he gave him to bring the pal- to the palace some of the what? Some of the young men, we're going to get into this a little bit here, but some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Now watch this. Here's the criteria of the type of young men that we're looking for. Select only the, and the, and the, that's on some of y'all's women's list right now, okay? Come on, give me strong, healthy. All right, go back real quick. So strong, 
healthy, good-looking, young men, and he said, okay, now we can go, make sure that they're well-versed in every branch of learning, that they're gifted with knowledge, so it's not, not, not only are they, well, are, are they good-looking and strong, they're also smart, brains and brawn. Uh, come on, that's another check on the list, all right? They're gifted with knowledge and good judgment, okay? Don't make stupid decisions. Uh, they're suited to serve in the royal palace. Look at the next verse says. Now, this is what I want you to do, okay? I want you to take these little Hebrew boys, these young Hebrew boys, and I want you to train these young men in the language and the literature of who? Of Babylon, okay? The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens, all right? They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. And here are the four that they chose, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. So here we are. They have, um, they've taken all of God's people, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, listen, I want, you to, I want you to select for me some young men, strong, good-looking, intelligent, bright, gifted, the best of the best of young men, and then we're going to take those under our wing, and for three years, we're going to indoctrinate them with all of our learning, all of our education, all of our wisdom, all of our laws, all of our gods. That's what's going to end up happening. And I want you to understand this first and foremost before we go anywhere. If culture is going to impact the world, it's always going to start with young people. It's always going to go after young people. This is why as a church we're so passionate about reaching the next generation and this generation that's coming up. This is why we put the money and the effort and the leadership into this generation because if you want to change the next generation, just impact this generation. And when you impact this generation, you impact the next generation. And so you, you see this all throughout scripture, by the way, that when the enemy was scared of what God was about to do, he attacked the young. He attacked the young. And so this is huge here. And by the way, that the enemy's after this right now, indoctrinating our kids through every media platform that they possibly can. Your kids are, getting, are learning the Babylonian literature and language right now through TikTok and YouTube and every other media outlet that there is. And so the culture has an agenda. And today, I, I titled today's message, The Culture's Greatest Need. And we'll get into that in just a minute, but I think before we can talk about what they need, I think we need to talk about the problem. I think we need to talk about the agenda. What is secular society's culture's agenda for not only our young people, but what is it, his, their agenda for all of us? What is the enemy's plan? And the enemy uses culture to do that. And so I want to give you three things that the enemy is after and what the culture is after and their agenda for you and I. And the first thing is the culture's agenda is to change your identity. That's the first thing that, that, that you're going to see that they do is that in verse 7 it says, the chief of staff, look at this in verse 7, the chief of staff, what do they do? They renamed them. They took these four young men and they said the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to rename you. We're going to give you a different name. That's your Hebrew name, but we're going to give you a Babylonian name, and we're going to give you these names. Daniel was, was renamed to Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. And so this is the issue that we see in culture 
is that they try to rename you. They want to change the way that you think. Why is this? Because names are important. Why are names important? Because based off of what you believe about yourself influences who you are and what you do. So Lindsay and I, as, as, as you all know, we have three boys. And we were very strategic about the names that we gave our boys. We wanted to make sure that our boys had biblical names. We wanted to make sure that they not only just had biblical names, but they had names that had meanings with them. And so um, we did, we did uh, something where their first name was a biblical name, and then their second name would be an honor to someone in our family. And so our, our first son is Josiah Jean. Josiah means the fire of God, the fire of the Lord. That's what Josiah, Josiah means. Um, and then Jean is named after my grandfather. That was his, his middle name. And, and so I've got the fire of the Lord and my grandfather, and it's an honor, honor of, of both of those. And uh, if any of y'all know, um, my son is very passionate for the Lord. Um, and and I'm, I'm grateful that he's living in the name that was given to him, walking in that. That's one of the things that I prayed is that he's always be strong and always have a passion for the Lord, just different things to pray over my sons. Um, my, my second born is Judah Joshua. Um, Judah meaning praise the Lord, praise of the Lord. And second one, Joshua, obviously. Um, obviously. And so he's named in my honor. Um, and, and then the Lord knew that he needed my name because he was going to be the one that tested me the most. And so, so every time I go, praise the Lord for Judah, praise the Lord for Judah. And, uh, and, and so that's what we pray. We pray that, that his life would be praised, his life, that everything that he would do, he would praise the Lord in all that he does. And then, and then of course, we've got Joel, and his name is Joel Timothy. Uh, Timothy named after my father-in-law, uh, Joel meaning the Lord is God, the Lord is God. Um, uh, it also can mean strong-willed, and uh, if anybody knows Joel, very fitting. Um, God knew which son could go through hell, um, and, and yet what we see is that all of us have given, been given names, and you know, maybe we've lived up to those names, maybe we haven't, maybe our names mean, mean something, maybe, maybe they don't. But according to this verse, you see that that's what they did. They, re, they renamed them. They said, I know you have a Hebrew name, but I'm going to give you a different name. Let, let, let me show you how the renaming process went real quick. It said this. So let's start with the first one. Daniel, his Hebrew name means God is my judge. But you'll notice that they renamed him to Belteshazzar, protect the king. Meaning that, that Daniel was, hey, I, I, I live for the glory of the Lord. I live for him. He is my judge to, no, 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 it's not about God anymore. It's you need to be all about the king. You need to make sure that you're taking care. How many know the enemy's greatest goal is to get your eyes off of God and get your eyes on other things? And so he renames them as a way just to, to let them know, hey, this isn't, this isn't your assignment anymore. This is, this is your, your new assignment. And you'll see how he, he does this even with the other ones. Watch, watch what it happens in, the, in his friends. So his next friend is named Hananiah. The Lord is gracious. And they rename him to Shadrach, commander of a coup. Now, a coup was a, was a, was a god. 
And, and, and so here we are going from yet again, I'm serving the Lord, the Lord has been gracious to me, to now I've got to serve a moon god, actually, is what it is. I'm, I'm now servant to the moon god. And you'll see, this plays out in each one. The next one says, uh, who is like the Lord? Mishael. What a name. Who's like the Lord? To Meshach. Who is like a coup? Getting their minds yet again off of God-centered to being lowercase God-centered. And then last one is Azariah, the Lord is my helper, to Abednego, servant of Nebu. Yet again, another, another God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, God was your helper. Yeah, you served him, but no, not anymore. This is, this is, you're no longer serving him anymore. And how many know the enemy's number one strategy is to get you confused about who you are? The enemy's number one strategy is to get you confused about who you are. We live in a world right now where they are, there's so much confusion that's going on, and the enemy would love to label you based off of so many different things. Oh, I'm blonde. Oh, I'm fat. Oh, I'm disabled. Oh, I'm an alcoholic. Oh, I'm this. Oh, I'm that. And you, you go through life, and we can allow these things that are in our life to become our identity. Sometimes we can allow our past mistakes to become our identity. I'm divorced, or I, I'm, I'm unclean, or I'm a failure. And these things can become our identities. Or we even just go around and go, what am I? Who am I? And if the enemy can get you to doubt who you are, you will live to the belief of who you think you are. So if you think you're a failure, guess what? You'll go through life believing and not only believing, but acting like a failure. Everything in your life, this is why it's so important. We've done a whole series on the mind of understanding who we are and what we think about ourselves because how we think about ourselves determines how we live out. It's the behaviors. If it changes the way we think, it changes the way we feel, it changes the way that we, we act and we allow past mistakes or we allow what people have said over us. I cannot tell you how many people I've counseled with that things that their parents have said about them or things that a bully has said about them or a teacher or a coach or an uncle or whatever it is has said about them, they have taken on that label and have begun to live out that lie. And the enemy's greatest desire is for you to be so confused about who you are. And this is yet again God's greatest desire is for you to know who you are. God wants you and I to understand who we are. And that, so I put, as exiles, we must know who we are. And do you notice that the renaming process happened to them when they were young? Do y'all know how many kids right now that are in elementary school that are wondering if they're a male or a female? A five-year-old wondering if they're a male or a female. An eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, because the culture always starts early, confusing them early, living a life of confusion. Who am I? And, and so this is what we do when we don't know who we are. We go to all these different places to try to find who we are. And here we are in this moment, and I want to remind us today what Scripture says in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. I love how the message says this. Listen to this. If you want to know who you are, let me tell you who you are. But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work. You are chosen to be a what? 
a holy people, God's instrument to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you. Come on, does anybody in here got a night or day difference of what God has done on the inside of you? Look at this. I love this. Listen, what, look, what, look what the night and day difference is. Go to the next verse. He says, he made for you from nothing to what? From rejected to? Friends, this world is not your home. So don't make yourselves cozy in it. God has chosen. Listen, some of you need to reintroduce yourself to some people. You need to let people know. Hey, listen, I know. Hello, my name is not Slim Shady. My name is, come on, my name is holy. My name is righteous. My name is forgiven. My name is redeemed. My name is friend of God. My name is man of God. My name is daughter of God. My name is, come on, some of y'all need to reintroduce yourself to somebody and go, no, my name's not bankruptcy. My name's not divorce. My name's not adulterer. My name's not my past. No, my name is who God calls me to be. He is my judge. He's my defender. He is my friend. He is my father. He is my Lord. It's about time you know who you are in Christ. And the greatest thing the enemy will want to do is he want to lie to you to make you think that you are what you've done what people have said, what you didn't do, what you didn't think you lived up to that you thought you should have. The culture's agenda is to change your identity. Because if the enemy can get your identity, he can get everything else. So it starts there. It starts there. Thankfully, these men, young men, knew who they were in Christ. And even if culture wanted to label them as something different, they didn't live up to that label. And you'll see in just a minute. Second agenda of the culture, let me tell you the second agenda is this, is to compromise your standards. Culture wants you to compromise your standards. Not only was Babylon trying to rename Daniel and his friends, they were trying to claim them. They said, we're going to spend the next three years indoctrinating you to think how we think, to learn how we live. This is called a worldview. All of us in here have a worldview. Everybody in here has a worldview. You say, well, Pastor Josh, what is a worldview? A worldview is made up of core convictions and core beliefs that you believe about God, about yourself, about the world. You say, well, why is that a big deal? Because it impacts the way that you live. Everybody in here has a worldview. I can bring up any topic and you've got a view about it. You've got a view about it. And, and our worldview has been um, put in us and learned from a young age. You're, you're learning worldview stuff from a young age. It starts with definitely our parents and our family and our influences, but then it can move to the school that we go, go to, the teachers that we're around. It can be, of course, the media that we, that, we, that we watch. I mean, we're all being indoctrinated with different things constantly. You're getting a worldview all the time. A worldview is a core belief. It's the intellectual, emotional, and spiritual filter that helps you understand, interpret, and make decisions. Now, here's the difference, though. There's all different types of worldviews. There's uh, syncretism worldview, and there's humanistic worldview, and there's secular worldview. But the desire that we have, if we're going to be God-honoring people that live for the glory of God, is we've got to have a biblical worldview. 
And the biblical worldview is that where we see and we interpret and we make decisions based off of the truth of what this says right here. This is a biblical worldview. Now, here's the startling statistics, okay? And maybe it's not as startling as we maybe think it is. Barna Research, this is probably one of the largest Christian researching organizations in the world, did a, a study and found that 68% of people, okay, almost 7 out of 10, say they have a biblical worldview. Say they have a biblical worldview. Okay, so what they did is said, okay, you say you have a biblical worldview. So then they asked them this question. How does your worldview impact the way you make decisions? Now watch this. 31% of them said, I make moral choices based on what feels right and comfortable. 18% said, I make moral choices based on whatever is best for me. 14% of those same 68% of people who say that they have a worldview that's built on this. 31% said, I do what feels right and comfortable. 18% said, I do what's best for me. 14% said, I base my decisions on whatever causes the least conflict with others. And only 16% said, I make moral choices based on what the Bible says. So when they begin to ask them these questions, they came to find out that only 12% of people actually have a biblical worldview. Not 68% of people. 68% of people think they do. 12% actually do. Meaning that our choices, our decisions, the way that we see the world, the way we see ourselves, the way we see life, the way we see everything is filtered through this right here. And the majority of people say, if it makes me feel better, I'll choose feel better over this. And that's scary. You know what that shows though? It shows that culture has impacted the church more than the church has impacted culture. And, and if the culture's agenda is for you to compromise your standards, the greatest way it can get you to compromise your standards is for you to not believe that this is true. And if you don't believe that this is true, guess who you believe is true? You. Now let me just do a survey here. How many of you in here have ever thought something was right and then maybe weeks, months, or years later come to find out you were wrong? Raise your hand. Okay, all right. And so yet, we make most of our decisions based off of what we think is right. But last time I checked, we can be wrong. Right? And we're often more wrong than we think we are. True? And yet, what we do is we have a timeless word of God that has stood the test of time. And yet, what ends up happening is slowly the culture has indoctrinated not only the world, but has indoctrinated even into the church for us to believe that, you know what, this is kind of just an old book and it needs to catch up with the times. And that's a scary place. Because guess who that makes as God? Your opinion. And last time I checked, I'm not good at being God. And so the culture says, you know what? Listen, let's get them to compromise on their standards. But I love Daniel. Daniel's 15, 16 years old. 
Hey, by the way, this is why it's so important that our young people and our teenagers get a good biblical worldview. Because Daniel at 15 or 16, look in verse 8, says this. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine that was given to him by the king. And so we asked the chief of staff for, for what? For permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. And so I love this because Daniel, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't just blow a fit and be like, no, I ain't doing any of this. No, no, he, he asks permission. He does it in the right way, in the right attitude. And he says, hey, listen, can we just, can, can I not do this? And you'll see this a little bit more in just a minute. But, but he, I, I, I love this part right here. He determined not to defile himself. He determined not to defile himself. There was a core conviction inside of Daniel and inside of each of his friends that they said, listen, no, 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 no. This goes against, because here's why they weren't going to eat the food. You ready? Because all of those food that, that, that the king was going to give them was, was prayed over for the gods. It was God's lowercase g, God's food. And so they had dedicated all this food to the gods and all this wine to the gods, and then they brought it to them and said, okay, now you can eat it. The gods have blessed it. And he goes, mm, I don't roll that way. Nope, I can't do that. I can't do that. And he had, there was something, there was a conviction, there was a standard that was within him that says, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I know, I know what culture around me says, and I know what y'all are saying, but can I just ask for permission? I, I just don't. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And you're going to see in just a minute that he honors this. But I want you to hear me very closely. God's standard is not against you. It's for you. Everybody listen to me. God's standard is not against you. It's for you. It's for your greatest good. It's for your greatest joy. When God says, hey, do marriage this way, guess what? That's for your greatest joy. When God says, hey, do it this way, it's because he wants your greatest joy in, his, in your life and for you to give honor and glory to him in all that you do. God's not trying to take from you. He's trying to give to you. And so as exiles, we must reaffirm our convictions the culture wants us to compromise our standards, but we must reaffirm our convictions. When I say convictions, I want you to hear me closely. Convictions require you to decide ahead of time. Convictions require you to decide. You cannot be in the heat of the moment and then decide, okay, what am I going to do with convictions here? You've got to pre-decide before the moment that you've got convictions and standards that you're going to uphold. So I'll give you one that was for Lindsay and I. I, from a young age, had made a conviction and a standard that I was going to honor God with my sexual purity. That I was going to be a virgin till I got married. Now, this was 20-something plus years ago, and, and I had to have that conviction for the moment when Lindsay and I were alone, and, and, and the moment did not want to go by the conviction. Y'all know what I'm saying? On the couch at midnight is not the time to determine if you're going to be convicted or not. You've got to predetermine it before you get to the moment. Because when you get to the moment, how many know the conviction goes out the window? So you've got to predetermine it from the very beginning that I'm going to honor you in this. And she had made that, 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 that same thing with me, that I'm, I'm going to honor you with this. And so we both went into marriage with this conviction of we're going to honor each other in giving our virginity to one another. And, and, and so we did. We were able to do that. And that was 20 years ago when it was hard enough. How I many know nowadays it's even harder? Yeah. It's, even, it's almost a rarity to ever even see that nowadays. But let me tell you something. Lindsay ain't had any better lover than me. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I am the best. 
the number one, the uno. Come on, somebody. And the same thing for her. <laughs> and it is not popular. I'm going to tell you right now, it is not popular. It's not popular. But it's worth it. I've yet to ever marry someone and said, I wish we would have had more sex before. Now, here's the beauty of grace and what God does, though, is that if you didn't save yourself, I believe God can give new things again. He can give new virginity again. He can, he can restore and renew. Come on, somebody. Anybody believe in the newness of what God restores and heals? And this is what he does. This is what he does. But I'm going to tell you, especially in the area of sexuality, we go, well, God, that's kind of old, God. That's the old school. You know, new school is now you test it out, you try it out, and you figure it out if it works or not. That's new school. No, no, no. That's new guilt. The Bible says you do sexuality this way. The Bible says you do marriage this way. The Bible says you do your finances this way. Nah, you know what? Nah, that's not really my style. And what ends up happening is syncretism is we pick and choose what parts of the Bible we like and don't like. And the ones we like, we live to. And the ones we don't like, we say it's old. But listen, this is either the word of God or it's not. All of it or none of it. We don't, it's not a buffet. We don't get to pick and choose. And so we've got we've to reaffirm our convictions. We've got to reestablish what those are in our lives. Because all of culture is going to be pounding against them to try to get you to lower those, to get you to abandon them. You've got to say, what is this, God? What, what does your word say about how we do our family? What does your word say about how I work in my job? What does your work, word say? Like, God, I want to drive this deep and into my heart because culture is coming after it. It's coming after what you believe. Because if it can change the way you think, it can change the way you act. And so if we've got 60-something percent of people saying they have a biblical worldview, but when you really test them and find out that only 12% of them do, we've, we've got some work to do. We've got some work to do. I mean, no, holiness is still God's standard. Righteousness is still God's standard. He didn't back down on that. We did. He still wants us to live this way, honor him in all that we do. Which goes to number three, and that is that, that if the culture can't get you to compromise your standards, but what they're going to do is they're going to test your faith. They're going to test it. They're going to see if you really do actually believe what you say you're going, to believe, you're going to do. And so if you look in verse 9, it says this. Now, God had given the chief of staff. Watch this. When he, when he talks about Daniel, the chief of staff had two things for Daniel. What? What's the first one? Respect. And the second one? Affection. So this chief of staff, there was something about Daniel, even though he was completely different, even though he had different standards and everything else, there was something about the way that Daniel upheld himself that gave this, this chief of staff respect for him and great affection for him. And so he responded, I am afraid. So, so Daniel had asked permission, hey, can we not eat this food? And, and the chief of staff said, well, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and this wine. And if you become pale and thin compared to the other youth your age, I'm afraid that the king will have me beheaded. And Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he says, please, what's those two words? Yes. Test us. 
for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. If you've ever heard of the Daniel fast, here's where you get it. Test us for 10 days. Daniel said, and at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating all this king's food, and then make your decision in light of what you see. And the attendant agreed to Daniel's suggested and tested them for 10 days. Life is full of tests, full of tests. It is one thing to say you trust God and I believe God and he'll, how many know you don't know till you're tested? You don't know till you're tested. Put to the test. Man, I love God and I love people. Let somebody offend you. Let someone speak negatively of you. Let's see. Can you turn the other cheek? Can you? You got to be tested. It's got to be tested. Convictions are all about the choices that you make before you're challenged. But faith is our ability to act on our convictions when we're challenged, when we're tested. And Daniel didn't see the test as a challenge. Daniel saw the test as an opportunity. Let me show you what my God can do. Put me to the test. I'm going to prove to you what my God can do. Challenge me. Let's go. Bring it on. I'm up for this. You know what? Ten days. Not even three. (laughs) Ten days. We're going to eat vegetables. Come on, a teenager eating vegetables. He knew God, something. <laughs> Trusted the Lord. 10 days of vegetables and water? Come on, somebody. This, this teenager's on another level. Which, which encourages me in this, and this is where I want to go at the end of our message, is that at, as exiles, we must respond the right way. Daniel and his three friends had to respond the right way because if he didn't respond the right way, he wouldn't have respect and affection for Daniel. But because of the way that Daniel honored a secular king and honored a secular government, even though he stood for his convictions and he stood on truth and he had his biblical worldview, he still could honor them in such a way. And we as Christians and as exiles and people that are not of this world, in it but not of it, we've got to make sure that we respond the right way. Even when we're faced up against things that we believe maybe are not true. And what ends up happening is is you got two camps. Let me tell you the two camps. You've got the truth camp. These are the people who, who, who we're right and you're wrong. This is the way it is and you just better get along with it and this is, this is how it is and this is how God is and this is why you're wrong and if you're, if you're wrong, you're going to go to hell. These are the ones that often will stand on the, on the corner of a street and say, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, turn, turn or burn, turn or burn, repent, repent, repent. And, and they're just yelling at people about how wrong they are. And I understand the heart behind it because they want to see people not go to hell. And they want to see people turn to the gospel. But they do it in such a way that they say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And the problem is God's never called us to be right. God's called us to be effective. He's called us to be effective. And so God's calling us to step in and go, yeah, yeah, there needs to be truth. You need to stand on what is right and what is true. And the truth is, most of the times, what those people are preaching is true, but it's not effective. And so what ends up happening is, is especially if you've been growing up in a church or you've been around people that are like this, and they're always like, well, it's just right. My way is the right way. And you get that? We can swing to the other pendulum, which is grace. And grace is, well, it doesn't matter. Everybody's welcome. Everybody will get to heaven at some point. We all can just kind of serve whatever God we want. God is love, right? We should just love people. Let's just keep loving people. 
And you know what? You really don't have to change. If you don't feel like changing, it's no big deal. Don't worry about changing. You don't have to change. You know why? Because God loves you. And he loves you exactly the way that you are. Which there's an element yet again of that that is true. God does love you where you are, but God loves you enough to not let you stay where you are. And so what ends up happening is we've got these two camps. We've got the truth camp going, no, this is right and this is wrong. And then, you know, burn, 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 burn. And then you got this other one. Let's just love everybody. Let's just love. Love's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Why y'all so mean? Y'all, y'all get over here in the love camp. You know, we all love each other. It's all awesome. And so you've got this, like, two pendulum things that, that swing. But, but watch this. Watch this. This is, this is huge here. Daniel stood firm in truth, but he also was a man of great grace. He had the ability to influence his culture. He had the ability to stand up for what was right and at the same time do it in a way that was loving. Guess what? You know who that looks like? Jesus. Jesus had the same ability. He was total perfection, complete holiness, totally righteous, never sinned, and yet welcomed sinners and prostitutes and the hurting and the broken. They are the ones who loved being with them. How could he stand for holiness and righteousness and yet at the same time hang out with the worst of the worst people? Because he was a man, according to what John 1:14 says, and the word became flesh, this is speaking of Jesus, and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of, of, as of only son from the father. Here we go. Full of and full of and full of and this is huge here. Jesus wasn't the truth camp and Jesus wasn't the grace camp. Jesus was the I'm in both camps. I'm in the full of grace and truth camp. We need both of these. So let me let me unpack this, okay? I've got 10 minutes, let me unpack it. What is truth? Truth is God's standard. That's what truth is. Truth is God's standard. And well, Pastor Josh, what's God's standard? Glad you asked. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Everybody help me. Because your, your word is truth. Your word is truth. What is truth? Here you go. This is truth. This is truth. What is truth? Truth is God's standard. What is God's standard? Truth. What is truth? Truth is God's word. We build our life on the standard of God's word. Beware. Let, oh, God. Beware when you hear people say, well, that's just not my truth. Watch out. Watch out. Well, that's just not my, that's, what, that's not my truth. Well, there's only one truth. The truth. Jesus didn't say, hey, come to me. I am a way, a truth, and a life. No, what did he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. I am am the truth. Yes, we love every single person, but believe that God's word is perfect and true. And at any moment, our preaching steers from this. Beware. We've got to continually come back anchored to this, even if it's not popular, even if people don't like it, even if it's offensive, we still have to come back to the truth. But yet, on the other side, we want to be full of truth, God's standard, but we also want to be full of grace, which is God's favor. God's favor, the grace of God. 
that, 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 that he loves us enough to not let us stay where we are. He gives us grace to empower us to live a righteous life. Not only does he call us to live the righteousness, the standard that truth requires, but then we couldn't live up to the righteousness of God. So what does he do? He comes and gives us grace for the areas where we fail and the moments where we, where we mess up. And God allows us to come to the place where he refuses to let anything you and I do qualify you for heaven. What I mean by that is you can't get baptized enough, you can't give enough, you can't serve enough, and you can't come to our Savior's church enough to get into heaven. You need the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9, God saved you by his, everybody tell me, grace, grace when you believed. And you, you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't pray enough prayers. You can't serve enough, give enough, love enough, attend enough. You're not going to get to heaven and you're going to be like, I went to our Savior's church 32 times. 32. Jesus, do you know what I could have done with those 32 days? You got to let me in. Like, look how much money. Look at my giving statement. Look, look, this is, look what I did. Look what I did for you. No, no, he says, listen, the only way you're getting in is grace. The only way you're getting in, you can't take credit, it's a gift. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. It is the grace of God. Let me give you another thing. Without truth, we're corrupt. But without grace, we're condemned. There are so many people who believe in a 51% gospel. You know what a 51% gospel is? I'll tell you. I'll tell you how you know you, you've heard a 51% gospel. You ever been to a funeral and, and people say this? Man, he was just, and you know this guy did not love Jesus at all. At all. But they say this statement right here. He was a good man. He was just a good man. And then they start listening. You know, he worked hard. He provided for his family. You know, he didn't cuss that much <laughs> and uh right i mean this is like dead on this is a 50 let me tell you how a 51 percent gospel is that i've done just enough good stuff to go above my 49 percent bad so yeah i was bad but i was only 49 percent bad i did 51 percent good enough that when i get to heaven it's, it's, we're going to be okay. It's, it's, it's going to be all right. But how many know the Bible says this, and, and it's so huge for us, because what ends up happening is we put ourselves on a scale. Here's the scale, really. Hitler's a zero. Jesus is 100. Where are we? Uh, I mean, I'm not Hitler. I'm not, not Jesus. I mean, maybe 70, maybe 70%. But, but how many know the only way you get into heaven is is 100, 100. Hey, how many in here are 100? No, we, come on now. The only way you 100 is if you said yes to Jesus because he's the only one that's in 100. If you're at 88, you're still out. 98, you're still out. Like, I don't care what you've done. The Bible says it's only the grace of God. So without truth, we're corrupt. Without grace, we're condemned. Let me give you another one. Without truth, we become worldly. Just do whatever you want. No big deal. We become extremely worldly. But without grace, we become judgmental. And so we say things like, well, at least I'm not as bad as, and you fill in the blank. 
Well, at least I'm not as bad as such and such. Hey, how many know you will never be more forgiven than what Christ has forgiven you? And you'll never forgive someone else any more than Christ has already forgiven you. So we need to be people of truth, but we also need to be people of grace because I don't want to be judgmental of other people because, hey, listen, ready? If you're in here and you're like, man, I'm so broken. I'm, I'm, I look around and all these people, they look like they love God and they serve God. Ready? Watch this. We just got into the hospital a little sooner than you did. And God just started healing us maybe just a little bit more than you did, but we all needed the hospital. We all needed the Savior. We all needed to be fixed. We all needed God to restore our brokenness. We all were in a place of darkness that he brought us into a place of light. Like we all were there. We're all there. And guess what? And we all still need him. We all still need him desperately every day. Truth without grace is mean. Y'all know any mean people? Don't look at them. Um, But watch this, but grace without truth is meaningless. So if it's all, if it's all grace and no, no truth, then it's just, it, it has no point. So grace and truth is medicine. And I know here at OSC, we want to be a place of grace and truth. We want to be both. Grace, here we go. Two more and we're done. Grace invites us to be free. Truth sets us free. You need both. It is the truth of God's word that sets you free, but it's grace that invites you into it. It's grace that invites you into it. I'm not gonna read this verse just for the sake of time, but if you know John chapter, in John chapter eight, Jesus um, comes, uh, he's, he's preaching, and there's a crowd around him, and um, he sat and he's teaching them, and the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees come, and they throw a woman at his feet that was caught in the act of adultery, which always gets me befundled because I'm like, how did the religious leaders know she was in the act of adultery? That's a whole nother thing. Come on, somebody. Peeping Tom. Okay, so they throw this lady in front of them, and here's what they say. They say this, what do you say? That's what they say. What do you say? And in that moment, Jesus has the option. If he goes truth, he's got a stoner. If he goes grace, then he broke one of his laws. So the Bible says that he sits down and he starts writing in the sand and nobody knows, it doesn't say in scripture what exactly he writes, but, but as he's writing, the Bible says from the oldest to the youngest, they start dropping their rocks because they came already with the rocks ready to go, slinging. And the Bible says that as he's writing on the ground, they start dropping these rocks from the oldest I don't know what happens. My interpretation, I think he started writing down the names of the mistresses those guys were with. <laughs> <You know. laughs> Susie. Mm-hmm. 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 Phyllis. Yeah, that's you. Mm-hmm. That's, what I, that's, that's my interpretation. It could be totally wrong. But he's writing something that they're like, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. Go to the last, last verse for me if you don't mind, Hannah, the very end of that. And so after all these guys are, are done, he picks her up. And he says, uh, go to the one right before that, actually. Then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Okay, now go to the next one. Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said to her, neither do I go and sin no more. 
So you see, you, you see this here. Grace, neither do I, and truth, get out of this. You got to change. You can't do this anymore. He's a man full of grace and truth. Which leads me to my last response, and that is as a people of God, we've got to hold high God's truth, and we've got to freely give God's grace. We've got to hold high truth, and we'll dive a lot more into this in the coming weeks, and we've got to freely give God's grace. Father, we love you. God, we thank you today that we are a graced people, that the truth of your word has exposed our sin, has exposed our rebellion, has exposed the areas of our heart and our life that has been anti-you, that has been self-centered, but it has been your extravagant, incredible, amazing grace that has brought us to you to humble ourselves, to repent of our sins. Religion tells us to run from you and go work ourselves up and clean ourselves off and then we can come back. But the great news of the gospel is that we don't leave God to get clean. We come to God to get clean. God, today we turn to you. God, we pray, Lord, that we would be like Daniel, that we would resolve in our hearts the convictions of your word. We would stand firm in truth. We would allow your word to speak over our lives. Not our opinions, not what other people say, but God, your word, your word. God, help us to hold this high help us to also extend grace freely because we realize God how forgiven we've been may we not hold on to unforgiveness but may we give it greatly because of what you've given to us so today Holy Spirit I invite you to come and help us line up our lives according to your word and I, I want to do this today because it's, it's only right this is, this is a moment of Explaining the gospel. The gospel is just that. That apart from Christ in the Garden of Eden, because of sin, because of Adam and Eve making their choice to make themselves God and to disobey God, the Bible says that they were exiled out of the garden. They were kicked out to go live in another home. Only for them to pursue their own desires and their own, their own wants and all of the Bible is this pursuit of God pursuing them, wanting to have relationship with them. Ultimately, we come to Jesus who says, you can never work your way back into relationship with God. I'm going to have to do it for you. Jesus goes to a cross. and He takes on our sin and our punishment. He takes on our shame. He takes on our rebellion. And the Bible says that if, if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you'll be forgiven, you'll be cleansed, you'll be born again. If there's those of you that are in here today, maybe you've lived your life for yourself, you've been your own standard, your own truth. 
Today, God is drawing you back home by his grace. We receive salvation by his grace. It's a gift that he gives to us today. If you're here in this room and you've never received the gift of salvation, I want to pray for you, but I want to know who you are. If that's you, on the count of three, I want you just to shoot your hands up and say, that's me. One, two, three. If that's you, going up all across this room, is there anybody that's in this room that says, that's me, that's me. I want to pray for you. And I want us today to just declare this for all of us that are in this room, for any of those that have raised their hand right now, those that maybe are watching online, would you just declare this outright with me right now? Would you say this? Say, dear Jesus, thank you for rescuing me from myself, from my sin, from my shame. I recognize that you are Lord, that you are my Savior. It is only your righteousness that gets me into heaven, that gives me a relationship with God. And so today, I submit my life, my heart, my everything to you. Come have your way in my life. Forgive me of my sins. Restore the joy of, of hope and peace and life back into my soul and my spirit. I declare today to follow you, to live my life based off the truth of your word. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the grace and the strength that I need to walk out this life fully devoted to you in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. amen.